Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Rablick. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Uh, my guest today is almost a temp- offers almost a temptation to explore banking regulation, being the sort of nerd that you, who those of you who have listened to this podcast, uh, would know that I am. But unfortunately, I'm not going to be going there. Uh, Abigail Boyd is a member of the New South Wales Upper House. She represents the Australian Greens. And she's in the middle of looking at, you know, for want of a better word, uh, consultants behaving badly and how the New South Wales government uses consultants and holds them accountable. The inquiry's been running since May 31. And it's running at the same time as a Commonwealth parliamentary inquiry into a similar topic. Now, are there any differences? Uh, uh, things the same. Well, we're about to find out. Abigail, thanks for joining me for, for this particular chat. Thank you very much for having me. Now, before we go into the substance of the inquiry, you did cause a disturbance this week, and I have to ask you to explain yourself. Now, <laughs> it, it, there was a, an amendment to a piece of legislation you put forward um, related to payroll tax, and in particular, um, you're trying to find a mechanism, successful or not, to capture a portion of the uh, portion of the revenue that the big, big four partners have for payroll tax purposes. Take me through that, will you please? Yeah, so I guess as part of our inquiry, um, we've been looking at, you know, the way that these these consulting firms have been structuring themselves. Um, and we can talk more about exactly sort of, you know, the, the I guess the, the range of concerns that we have. But one of the things that stuck out to me was that um, these consulting firms, when they organise themselves as partnerships, don't pay payroll tax um, on their sort of partnership drawings. So although they pay partnership, sorry, they pay payroll tax for their employees, um, unlike if you had a, you know, sort of a CEO of a, of a large corporation, um, there's no payroll tax paid on the drawings of the most senior people in that firm. And when you've got firms of, you know, a thousand plus partners, um, what you're looking at is quite a, a large avoidance of payroll tax. Uh, which we could really deal with, uh, you know, we could really do with having in New South Wales to spend on on other things. Okay. Now, if we look at that more closely, um, what sort of, I'm thinking accounting-wise, you get this money in and whatever's left goes into the, the accounts of a, a partner in terms of their proportion. Um, how would you, how would you pull that out of the partnership pool? Would 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 you? There's got to be a point at which the payroll tax is one calculated and then taken out mm-hmm. of the system, so mm-hmm. it doesn't get into the partner's bank account, um, so they can pay for their next trip to Aspen. Now, if you, how would you do it? Um, what sort of ideas that you have when you put the legislation together as to how this might work? Yeah, I actually think it's incredibly simple. Um, You've got an amount of drawings being taken. You've got a a payroll tax amount of 5.5%. 
these are incredibly, uh, we're led to believe, very clever um, mathematicians who are able to calculate how that would work um, backwards. But yeah, effectively, you've got a, you know, the, the entire take that you're going to be giving out um, in drawings or you're going to be giving out in partner distributions, um, you take five and a half percent of that amount and that is a liability to the state, just, just as they do for um, any other employee um, who doesn't get that title of partner. Uh, and it really does come down to this sort of, you know, these partnership structures, they're the best of both worlds. They, they, they're not corporations um, that are responsible to shareholders. Uh, they they don't have any of the um, you know the same sort of transparency uh, obligations over their accounts, um, and they're able to effectively shield themselves still behind um, liability measures. So you know they've still got a maximum liability for for when they can be sued. Um, so they've got all of these great benefits, but then because of this fancy corporate structure, they're then able to say oh, but we're not actually going to pay the same amount of tax as if we had structured ourselves as a company. You got a reaction this week, didn't you? <laughs> the chartered, chartered accountants were unhappy. Mm. Um, what do you put that down to? I did ask the Parliament when I was putting this up as an amend that, you know, we could perhaps pause and feel sorry for the consulting firms for, for a short period of time. Um We've. Um, I think it's indefensible. For example, there was there was a complaint at first. We were told, "Oh, this would never work uh, if you've got a um, you know a partnership that's actually um, you know incorporated, for example, in the ACT or somewhere else. Then you wouldn't be able to catch this. Um, that's just not true under our under our New South Wales Payroll um, Tax Act. We absolutely, uh, regardless of where you're incorporated, can capture. Um, what whatever we define to be wages uh, that are paid within New South Wales. So that that was kind of um, quickly um, put to one side and agreed on that that perhaps they weren't correct on that. Uh, so then you know there was a bit more sort of uh, squabbling, um, and then finally it was agreed that it probably was an effective measure. Uh, and then we got that statement out that um, yes, but this was punitive. Uh, the the idea being that somehow because we are now looking very closely at the operation of these consulting firms, that any measure to regulate them or any measure to make them behave like everybody else is somehow a punishment um, that is unfair. So when when we got that reaction, it just made me uh, even more convinced that we were onto the right you know on the right track. Um, and I think these consulting firms are now looking very nervously at every other jurisdiction around Australia um, because every jurisdiction could implement this kind of payroll tax quite easily. It's just the kind of thing that you could put uh, put forward to the Minister's government to raise at National Cabinet. Yeah, and we had some very productive conversations with the Finance Minister here Um She's very interested in this. I mean, we are talking about a quarter of a billion dollars over the forward estimates just from the big four. Um, apologies, though, you would just get over the uh, <laughs> sound of my inbox. Um, I will, if I can just turn that down. There we go. Your, your, your inbox, it's fine. It's the number, it's the, it's the <laughs> sort of thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars you've mentioned that has me rolling my eyes. <laughs> So, Carry shall I repeat? <laughs> so, yeah, so we're looking at uh, a quarter of a billion dollars over the forward estimates 
um, that we could collect just from the big four. Now, if we were to then extend it further, and, and can I note that, you know, we do have, I think it's Accenture and McKinsey's that, that aren't structured as partnerships. They are paying payroll tax. Um, so it's not like it's a, I don't know, it, it, these, these consulting firms aren't um, a, a protected species. We, we can actually treat them um, like everybody else. Um, but when we mentioned this to the finance minister in New South Wales, she was very keen on taking it um, for national discussions and to really work out whether this was, you know, a, a, something that they could do. Um, so I think the fact that they they haven't objected to it, they couldn't pick any holes in it when it was sent to the revenue um, and the department for their advice. Um, it is a measure that they could take. So I think it's only a matter of time um, before we do see this payroll tax being applied to the to the big consulting firms. If we go back to May 31, when some of this started to crystallise a bit more, when the inquiry commenced into, you know, the firm's behaving badly, if I can use the term loosely, um, what inspired the inquiry to begin with? Mm. Um, so we were inspired by the Auditor General's report that she released in um, in March, so just ahead of the New South Wales state election. Um, okay. And in that report, um, she pointed out the huge difficulties she was having in quantifying the use of consultants by the New South Wales government. And she, she picked out a number of issues that were of concern. Um, one of them was the number of entities like the local health district entities um, in New South Wales that don't need to report on their consultant uh, consultants use to the same extent. Um, and the other big thing was the, the use of um, systems by the New South Wales government that are supposed to re record how much we're spending on consultants that simply aren't doing the task. So there was a, it was quite a damning report that came out just before the election. And so during the election campaign, I actually put out a, a press release at that time um, saying we need to have an inquiry into the New South Wales government's uh, use of consultants. And that is one of the first things that I would do when I get back into parliament. So for us, it was a, you know, a ticking of, a, of an election promise effectively. But we had no idea at the time we made that promise that all of this stuff would happen with PwC and the federal inquiries would kick off. So it was just a, a lovely, sweet coincidence, um, perhaps. Now, you've been around. Um, I've had a look at your CB. You've done all sorts of stuff in banking regulation. You've seen, um, actually, if I can call it that, as a corporate lawyer here and overseas, so, you know, in, in asking you this question, when I when I ask someone else who's not of that environment, what surprises them? Mm. There's a lot more that surprises those people than will possibly surprise someone like you. In your work on this committee to date, and I note that it's still ongoing, what are the things that have surprised you most? I think that's an excellent question, and I think it's the lack of regulation. So what I know from my experience in banking regulation and in the corporate world um, is that these profit-making institutions, by their very nature, are designed to operate within the bounds uh, of regulation to the maximum extent 
in order to maximize their profits. Like that is not a surprise. That is what they're supposed to be doing. So if you, you know, if you go to a um, one of my old colleagues in the banks and say, you know, what, like, what, why are you behaving like this? Um, they will, they will say that they will behave, um, that they're behaving ethically, uh, so long as they're staying within the bounds of the law. And it is, there is nothing else in their mind other than making um, the maximum profit possible. So. What surprises me is that you have these consulting firms that because of their history as independent auditors and having this sort of um, uh, almost inherent ethical status, um, as they've morphed into consulting firms that are absolutely driven by the profit motive, regulators have really taken their eye off of things and allowed these consulting firms to sort of trade off of that ethical historical reputation of the the big names of these, you know, EY and KPMG and whatever, um, to to basically exist without regulation, um, and it's extraordinary to me when you look at, you know, I was originally a lawyer, and when I was a lawyer, I, I it, was, it was sort of you know drilled into us about the the ethics of being a lawyer, um, and you know, we we have always taken that incredibly seriously, but that that was backed up by incredibly stringent penalties for if you were to commit fraud or do something that was unethical, um, you can be disbarred. You you know you can lose your your practicing um, certificate. You can be taken um, to court, and that is that is regulation working properly. But when it comes to these consulting firms. Um, in these in these hearings, we are hearing time after time after time. Um, if I ask, for example, a, you know, a, a government um, bureaucrat, what, why why have you um, taken the consulting firm's word when they say they don't have a conflict of interest, um, for example? And they will say, oh, because well, they they're bound by a code of ethics and they they agreed that they wouldn't do the wrong thing. Um, there's never a there's never a consequence for them failing to do that thing. So what we have is an entire uh, framework set up around the use of these consultants, which is relying on them to just do the right thing, as though they're not the profit-taking institutions that they are, as if they're not driven by a profit motive and incentivized to actually go to the very bounds of ethical behavior in order um, to make uh, the most profitable and have the most profitable business. So it's a very long way of saying the the biggest surprise is just how trusted these institutions are, how embedded they've become within our government, and how reluctant people are to now regulate them. Interesting you reflect on it that way because there's um In corporate governance literature, in uh, the, you've got the concept of setting the tone from the top, and you wonder who sets the tone in government for the way in which procurement takes place. And on the other side of the fence, we can go to the other side of the net on the tennis court of consulting. If I may be permitted to be florid for a moment. Um, you've got the accounting firms who've got these who, who do have ethical standards, which you've heard about at your inquiry. 
um, in a very interesting piece of evidence from the Ethical Standards Centre, um, and then who sets the parameters within those firms for what the people involved in government services actually do. So you've got a tension between uh, those people that control the handing over of the scarce resource of taxpayers' funds. How do they do what they do and why? And then how these firms so readily take that on um, and perhaps forget that their own literature um, has some principles in it. Mm. I think, like, this lack of consequences is one of the things I keep coming back to because even if you take something like the, you know, the PwC um, tax confidentiality scandal, uh, the response at New South Wales level was to say, we're going to put a halt on our PwC tax work. Look at us taking this nice strong stand. We're going to, until we get the, you know, a bit more information about what's gone on with PwC, we're going to put a halt on the work that they're doing for us on tax. Look at us, strong stand. But then when you look into it, it turns out that the, the total amount of spend to PwC from the New South Wales government is actually on tax stuff is only 1.2%. So the, the consequence for PwC in New South Wales um, for this really shocking scandal at a federal level has been for the New South Wales government to say, you can, you can only do 98.8% of the work you were doing for us before. Now that is not a, you know, a, a proper consequence. Um, for this kind of poor behaviour. And I think um, that's that's what we're looking at in terms of how do we actually um, create structures and processes within the government that not just sends a message, not just relies on the um, consultant firms to do the right thing, but has actual consequences um, for when they are doing work that is not of the right standard or when they are breaching um, their own ethical standards. You're familiar with all sorts of regulatory structures here and overseas and within different professions. And just a, it's just the way things happen when you work in the legal space. And, and, and I know from my own experience in terms of the accounting world, you you things rub against each other and conflict and whatever else. Um, I'm aware that the committee is still doing work, but what are the kinds of things, what are the kind of Lego bricks you're playing with in your head right now mm. that <laughs> in terms of in terms of the the elements of regulation, the principles that you would like to see emerge over time, not just as a result of your work, but also as a result of the work of others? Mm. Um, there's a lot. Um, and I think we will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're looking, I guess we're starting from a I'm hoping that we can release an interim report, at least on the transparency and procurement aspects. Um, so perhaps we talk about them first. So right. in our very first hearing, we asked um, Treasury whether they could tell us how much was being spent on New South Wales, sorry, being spent on consultants by the New South Wales government. And they could not tell us. 
And I, I pressed and pressed. I said, is there not a record for even for the last year where you can say X amount of money has gone from New South Wales government accounts to the accounts of the big four? They're not able to tell us that. And one of the reasons they can't tell us that is because the systems where invoices are processed within the New South Wales government um, are flawed to such an extent that we just don't know. Now, when we looked into that, it turns out that the same system that is so flawed it can't tell us how much is being spent on consultants was designed and is still operated by PwC. So even before we delve into annual reports, even before we, we look at exactly what that uh, consulting spend looks like, we don't even have the ability in this place to be able to quantify a raw amount. I mean, that's that is... Yeah, but run, run that by me again one more time. So we have, you have Treasury before you. Mm -hmm. Treasury does numbers. <laughs> They're supposedly bright. Mm. They come before someone who is very inquisitive and extremely interested and extremely bright and doesn't take fools kindly. And they can't answer a simple question, which is how much money do we spend on people that provide you with services? So the Treasury, which is the money box of the government, mm -hmm. doesn't know how much money has gone out the door to individual consultancies. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Yeah, and, and then to find out that it's because the system that they're relying on is incapable of telling them that and it happens to have also been designed and is still operated by PwC is just the icing on the cake, I think. Um, so <laughs> You're not suggesting, are you, that it's the definition of irony? It's, <laughs> it's um, I mean, oh, I'm very sorry about my inbox going again. Um, just give me your, your one. Inbox, your inbox is allowed to go. It's okay. It's <laughs> it's trying to tell me to do. I'm stuff. still trying to go. I'm still trying to cope with the idea that there's a system that Treasury runs that can't give it numbers about how much money it spends, and it's in charge mm. of a budget. Mm. It's it is extraordinary, um, and so part of the problem they tell us is that there is a a definitional issue where each so each part uh, sorry each part of the um, government each department and agency has to sort of input into this system. It's called Prime. They have to input into Prime whether um, the spend is a contracting spend or a consulting spend or something else. Um, and when there's a bit of doubt about which one it might be, they tend to put contracting because that doesn't have the same disclosure requirements at the end of the day. So there's a it's sort of a bit of an incentive to under-report your consultants anyway. Um, so there's been a lot of talk about these definitions and absolutely we need to just make them report all of it, at, you know, and have the same disclosure requirements, whether it's technically a contract or a, or a consulting. Um, but... Wait a minute. Hold on, hold on. So we've got... I'm, um, I'm processing this as you speak. <laughs> so we've got this definition of consulting and contracting. Mm-hmm. If I put something in a contract, if I call something a contract, that means my mates in the in the consulting firm who I like dearly and want to earn money, mm 
don't have to tell me more than the poor bastard that I put into the category <laughs> of consulting. Okay. <laughs> so you then don't need to disclose it. You don't need, it's not got the, you need some disclosure, but it's not got the same um, impact. Yeah. So, um, you're kill, so it you're won't killing me. No. <laughs> so we have, <laughs> it is absurd. So I say to Treasury, okay. Um, but you still must be able to tell me, regardless of what it's been inputted at, if there's if the invoice is going for a payment to KPMG, for example, you must be able to tell me how much entire money has gone from Treasury to KPMG, regardless of what it was for. They can't. They cannot tell me that. So this is how, how broken um, and how opaque the system has become um, when it comes to, and this is one of the reasons why the attorney, sorry, the auditor general was unable to actually quantify how much the New South Wales government was spending because that's how broken the systems are. Now, if you don't have transparency, you can't have accountability. If we don't know how much is being spent, we can't inquire on what it's being spent on. We can't then drill down into those contracts to work out, is this a good use of, of money? Did we need consultants in this case? Was it overpriced contract? Was there perhaps some element of um, corruption or, you know, sort of deals with mates? You can't do any of that when you can't even get to that basic point of how much are we spending? Um, so it's incredibly serious that we, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's shocking, um, but it's it's vital that that's one of the first things that we address. Um, and hand in hand with that is our flawed e-tender system. So at the Australian level, at the federal level, their, their tender site, Oztender, um, requires everyone to put up these contracts, you know, details of what the engagement is, whether it's a contract, a consultant, whatever, um, how the tender was done, um, you know, why they decided to go with that particular person. That all goes up there. Um, and it stays there. So you can go back and, you know, and search through. It's a relatively good, um, and I say relatively, relatively good system for working out what what is going on in terms of government money being spent on external um, entities. But when it comes to New South Wales, we have a three-month limit on that information. So firstly, you don't need to disclose unless it's over $150,000. So there's a lot of contracts for $149,000. Mm. Um, and then I you've got, why. yes, exactly. And then after three months, it drops off the system. It gets deleted. So unless you're watching every day and making your own little file, um, you don't have an ongoing record. Um, and you also don't have any record of the, you know, the original disclosure of a contract that then gets changed. So one of the things that we've seen at federal level uh, is this, you know, inflation of contract prices after the deal is done. So you get your you get your consultant on, you pay, you decide you're going to pay them $149,000. So maybe you don't need to disclose it in New South Wales. Um, and then lo and behold, there's a contract extension or variation um, where you don't need to go through the same tender processes and you can then just disclose that. So at the last hearing we had, we pointed out to um, the CIRA um, managing director that he had 
um, or his organisation had disclosed a contract um, that was the original price was two hundred and something thousand dollars, um, but he had then lodged a variation to that contract over twelve million dollars. So that contract had gone from two hundred and something thousand to twelve million. Um, the same contract. Uh, and so I quizzed him about that uh, and he was telling us it was a mistake, etc. Um, but that's a prime Just example. Just a minor variation between Just the two mi- figures. It was, I calculated, it was 9,111% more than it had begun, um, which <laughs> is quite a variation. Um, so yeah, yeah, the, the variance there makes my eye water. Thank you. <laughs> so... And you know, I, I laugh about it because it's that it's that bad. Um, so we so we've got a, a bunch of recommendations we want to make about ensuring that the you know disclosures are of any significant amount, not one hundred fifty thousand, um, that those disclosures stay up on the site um, so that everyone can see them and and hold people accountable. Um, that the government tidy up its invoicing system so it actually knows what's going on. Um, and then I guess the final bit of that is to ensure that if people don't do that properly, that there are actual consequences. But one of the things that I've floated in a recent article, which heads down a similar direction, and I perhaps cheekily sent it to the three members of the Senate who are on the consulting committee, just as a FYI. Mm. for their information, um, was establishing a register of consultants that are on procurement panels, regardless of whether they have work or not, and and regardless of whether they're a sole trader or a partnership. Mm-hmm. Because what you want, ideally, is a system that works well, that is transparent and doesn't end up producing massive amounts of work for New South Wales ICAC or the Federal National Anti-Corruption Commission. Mm. Because if you have a sole trader who's got a mate in a department who's giving them work for whatever reason, you actually need to have that, um, need to have some information on that contractor publicly available. We already have a register for lobbyists at a Commonwealth level, right? And But we don't have a register for the consultants that the government sometimes uses to give them back an answer that they want mm. in order to influence government policy, which has already been, already been influenced because they're buying in they're buying in an answer. They're not buying an independent expertise. It's effectively the same thing, surely. In, and I've thought a lot about this, but in many cases, these consultants are acting as lobbyists. Um, they're, they're either acting as lobbyists for the consulting industry itself um, or they're acting on behalf of clients and, and of corporate clients. And we have found instances of, you know, these so-called, uh, you know, government sector leads that sit in these consulting firms um, getting wonderful um, reviews and write-ups from people about how great they are at connecting corporate clients with government clients like well, this yeah, is yeah, yeah, that is a lobbyist. Old, yeah, but that's just because their old mates are in government and they've walked into an into a consulting firm. Mm. Exactly. It's not that exactly. Hard. And that's 
you know, and we we could talk for I think probably for an entire day about this, um, because of course one of the other issues is that diary. Yeah, (laughs) but it is that revolving door. You know, we have these people who are going straight from consulting firms into the, um, you know, very senior government positions, and then getting spat back out the other side again. Um, We have all of these people sitting on government boards who are also either just coming out of consulting firms or are still partners. And then we have all of these other people who are sitting as secondees or contractors within government departments. Um, It is, you know, I've referred to it as an infestation. It it is. It's the embedding of these consultants within government processes and, and the way that they can influence what happens in government is just extraordinary. You, you're looking at doing an interim report, um, as you've said, uh, and, and you've been very generous with your time today. So what I'd like to do is sort of ask you a couple more questions, if I may. The, um, but how long do you expect the inquiry to go? Because you don't want to be spending your, your, you know, the next two years looking at this. Um, maybe you do. Well, maybe we do. So I think. The more, I think we stop this inquiry when there's stuff to stop looking at. So we started off with health because there was, you know, the health department had the the worst level of disclosure because of the local health district structure. Um, There was a lot to look at. Um, We're moving on to transport. Then we're going to get to some of the other departments. Um, And we will keep going because there are general principles coming out of the case studies we're uncovering as we go. But there's also just very concerning, every time we look into any of these departments, there are very concerning examples of conflicts of interest and dodgy decision-making that deserve sunlight. Now, the other question, um, I guess, to to wrap up the the podcast itself is... um, there are people who may listen to this or who know of people in government, particularly in your state, who've experienced misconduct. What is the best way for people to contact the committee uh, if they if they wish to share some uh, material? Um, so if they go on to the New South Wales Parliament site and look into inquiries and then go to the Public Accountability Works Committee, um, there is a submission link where you can put in a submission or you can look me up personally so abigail boyd um and send me an email at my office um email we um you know the more information we get the better um, because it's by uncovering these issues by getting the public and the media interested that we build the momentum to make the changes we need because these consultants and these firms have been very much under the radar until now. Um, We have a golden opportunity to reform them and to make them work as they were intended to, um, rather than in the way that they've been allowed. I've been speaking with uh, Abigail Boyd, Upper House Member in New South Wales Parliament, but who's also chairing for her sins, I guess, the consulting (laughs) inquiry into um, how government looks at how government engages with consultants and the behaviour of people who are in consultancies of varying kinds. Thank you so much for, for having a chat with me today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it.